All right, well, welcome back to our study of the book of Romans. We're in lesson 24 today, and uh, we're in that section of the book of Romans, chapter 6 to 8, on sanctification, and we're in the eighth lesson of that section. And in particular, we're in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 13 today, which I simply have titled, The Spirit of Life. Well, I think it's important as we enter into a new chapter in the book of Romans, chapter 8, that I give a a little bit of a perspective, and that's going to be the key word in what I'm going to share. Um, You know, when Carl and I like, when, not when, but Carl and I like to travel. And, uh, you know, we we like airplane flights insofar as they go. But (laughs) But I'm always intrigued, and when I was a boy, I was intrigued with this idea. We're going to fly into one of the hubs, right? One of the hubs of that airline. And so, as you know, as you fly, going to a hub of an airline means it's a regional city airport where a lot of their flights come in, pour out, and then from there they disperse to go to other places. So that's why it often is, oh, I can't fly direct to... Akron from BWI, but I can go to one of their hubs and land there, and then they'll take me to the smaller cities or the the less populated cities. You know, I was always fascinated by that in flying, because you get to see at the hub their best stuff. You know, that's where they have all the food and the accommodations and all the fancy people helping you. When you fly into Akron, you're like, nah. It's kind of like flying in the Caribbean. I don't know if any of you have flown, depending on what, what island, but there's an airline called Liat, L-I-A-T. Has anybody ever been on Liat? Okay, L-I-A-T should stand for luggage in another terminal. I knew I was in trouble when I got on the, when I got on the plane, and literally, you're thinking I'm making this up, my feet were in the back of the cockpit. <laughs> right? I was in the front row, my feet were in the cockpit, and the airlines, hey, you know, this was when Carl and I got nervous. The pilots got out a manual and started looking through it, and I was like, there, there is no hub for Leah. <laughs> uh, I say all that to say, Romans chapter 8 is the hub of the book of Romans. It's where everything comes to, in a centered point, and it's everything flows out from the book of Romans chapter 8. Let me explain. This whole chapter, I think, should be surrounded by the word perspective. Paul is going to give us a perspective in chapter 8 of where he's been, what the whole Christian life is, and where it's going. And in chapter 8, he deals with justification, sanctification, glorification. And in chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, we're about to get into that, he refreshes you on what your justification means. Chapter 8, verses 5 to blended, kind of depends where you think that line ends, is on sanctification. And then near the end of the chapter, he's going to talk about creation groans for its completion or its glorification, and that we look forward to that. And Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to Verses 28 to 30, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Paul is going to give us a perspective on God's plan for the ages 
and all the major doctrines of the Christian faith are tethered in this chapter. You can find all ten of the major doctrines within systematic theology discussed in some manner in this particular chapter. And so what we have, though, as a large focus, as you know, is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the main, he's focused on the most out of anyone in the Trinity in this particular chapter. And it's how the Holy Spirit helps the Christian, who's tethered in their justification, is being sanctified, and ultimately will be glorified. And so the Holy Spirit, it, it discusses with us things like, he's overcome sin and death, the law of sin and death. He gives assurance. He gives perseverance, verse 25. And ultimately, he conforms us to the image of Christ. So big picture, Romans chapter 8, this is kind of it. It, it takes the whole book of Romans, and it's not that it's downhill from there, but it sort of crescendos in its message in chapter 8. And so what we've been through so far is sin, salvation, and now we're in the point of sanctification. And Paul will again, he'll, he'll summarize those in chapter 8. And then he will finish his larger talk on sanctification in this chapter, chapter 8, and then bring us into chapter 9, which is the explanation of how this all works. It's now going to talk about election. Because in chapter 8, it ends with that beautiful passage is, there is no, nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And if you're in Christ, you cannot be lost. And there's nothing, not even yourself, that can separate you. But it brings up a question. If that's true, whatever happened to Israel? Didn't God say that in the Old Testament, that they were his elect? That Israel were his people? That he made an eternal covenant with them? But by the time that the book of Romans is written, looks like Gentiles are starting to take over the church. Less and less Jews are being saved. And now it be, the church has become flooded with Gentiles are getting saved. And it's like, whatever happened to Israel, they were God's people. They were elect. And they're not going anywhere with this. And so Paul addresses in chapter 9, 10, and 11, whatever happened to Israel, what does election mean? Are the people being saved who are supposed to be saved? Or did God fail? And so in Romans chapter 9, Paul asks the question, has the word of God failed? Because God said in the Old Testament, this is going to happen, and it didn't seem to be happening. Okay. So that's a big perspective. Any questions on that before I dive into my notes? So good to have you guys. All right. Well, let's jump in. All right. Big picture. Let's jump into the book of Romans chapter 8. Verses 1 to 4, Paul will remind us, of our justification and how it is bridged to sanctification and how important it is to remember that in the light of sanctification. Verses 1 to 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That should be enough. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. 
and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There's a lot of truths in this passage, so let's dive into a few of those. Number one, the Trinity is at work in justification and sanctification. Paul's going to mention three different times in the first 17 verses in this chapter, the Trinity. Now, he doesn't have a Trinity verse, like, altogether, but in a little section, he'll mention the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, come back and do it again, and again. Why? To show us that it's the Trinity at work within us, though the Holy Spirit is focused on in this chapter in terms of his particular work. Let me explain. The Father's mentioned in these first four verses. Anytime you have the word God, and then you have Christ and the Holy Spirit in a close context, God is standing for the Father, not the Trinitarian nature of their, their nature, but rather the Father as a person. So what did the Father do according to these verses? He sent his Son. And secondly, the Father's plan of sending the Son provides forgiveness of our sins. It's really highlighting the mercy of God. Uh, God the Father sent the Son to take care of our sin problem. So the plan overcame our inability. The scripture says there, weak as it was through the flesh. God's plan found us at our weakest point. The law was overcoming us and condemning us. But God sent his son to come under the law to shield us from the law's power and authority in terms of the wrath of God and saved us from his wrath. Secondly, the son is mentioned in here. The Holy Spirit is mentioned and focused on, but this is all in Christ. The in Christ is where the many blessings of salvation are enjoyed by us. Uh, there's no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ. Now this is Paul's summary of his whole book. Now this is not to be funny, but think about it. It's not, there's no condemnation for those who are religious. Or there's no condemnation for those who are Jewish. Or there's no condemnation for those who are in church. Anything that we could fill in, Paul has addressed, right? In the first eight, seven chapters of, you can't get saved by any of that. Uh, there's no condemnation for those of you who've been baptized. Or have given money. Or like Dave's teaching. We should wonder about you if that's the case. No, rather it's in Christ that all of this flows to us. So there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ. When Paul starts out and says, therefore there's no condemnation, what is he pointing back to? Uh, Paul is summarizing, in my estimation, what has proceeded, should be preceded, right? Not proceeded. In the book of Romans. Hey, I, I type this stuff. What do I know? Notably justification by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. He's certainly pushing back to the whole summary of what he's already said in the book. But I would also suggest in the near context, Paul's explained the inward struggle of the Christian with their flesh. That's chapter 7. All right? So the struggling, battling believer is not condemned, but rather is armed with a knowledge that the battle is real and to be expected. I think those are both to be understood. Paul's saying there is no condemnation in terms of legal condemnation. I've already dealt with that in justification. And particularly in the context that I just finished, because there's no, the chapter divisions are not, right, they're not inspired, right? Uh, the word is continuing to say, that struggling Christian that Paul just said, there's therefore no condemnation to them because they are in Christ, yet struggling. And so I think it's a dual reality to say, you're not condemned before the Father. He knows that you're a struggle. 
He knows we're struggling. Knocking down the water. So only in Christ does the Spirit set us free from the law of sin and death. It cannot be overcome by the flesh through human works. Christ was sent in the likeness, in the likeness of sinful flesh, but not in sinful flesh, right? In these verses. He was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. So the virgin birth of Christ was a miracle bypassing the sin natures of Joseph and Mary. How is the sin nature passed down in humanity? It's called traducianism. That's the theological term, right? But how is it passed down? By procreation, right? Through the husband and the wife having a child. It's not just the body is formed, but the soul, mysteriously so, has been sent through this experience, and so the soul is formed, it's knit together in your mother's womb, the soulishness of Adam is passed down through all of us. Your soul is fallen. It's not inserted, right? God doesn't have fallen bodies and inserts brand new, perfect souls inside of them. There's not a baby factory. There's not a baby warehouse where all the souls were made, and God pumps them in. That's Mormonism. Okay? So where does the soul of a person come from? It is through the mystery of God having a man and a woman together, not only knitted together their physical, but their, their spirit. That was all bypassed in the virgin birth. If, if Christ had come from a normal procreation, what would happen? He would have had a sin nature. He would have had a sinful soul because sinners can only produce sinners. So it was a miracle. And so his humanity, though it is fully human, has the bypass so that he is not a sinner. So the Son was sent. What does that imply? That he's eternal. Uh, he existed and he was sent. He already existed. Uh, the Son is sinless. He's not in sinful flesh, only in the likeness of it. That is, he was fully human. So he, he looked and he really was human. But he did not have sinful flesh or did not have a sin nature like we do. And the Son is truly human. He's not merely in the likeness of flesh, but in the likeness of sinful flesh. That's Paul again. I'm being pedantic here. But Paul's point is, he's not a sinner, but he was a human. Now we know in 1 John, what 1 John is dealing with is the thing called Gnosticism. Namely that material is bad. But all spiritual stuff, spirit stuff is good. And so it says this in 1 John 4. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now I was confused. I remember as a teenager becoming a Christian, reading 1 John, and being confused by that. Because I'm like, so that's the only test? You know, how do you know the Spirit of God versus the Spirit of evil? Well, if a person is teaching that Jesus came in the flesh, in real humanity, then they are from God. Well, no, Arianism or Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus had real flesh, but they, don't, but they teach that he's not really God. He was created being, right? So this, this cannot stand alone as a verse. It was attacking the Gnostics who were saying he didn't have real flesh, or the ascetic view, that he was a phantom. Okay, enough said on that. And finally, Christ paid for sin and fulfilled the requirements of the law by imputation. What is imputation? 
one of you theologians real quick when we talk about that. Come on, you theologians, besides Anne. Larson was put on Christ from the cross, and his righteousness was imputed to him. Very good, very good. Excellent, Brian. So, yeah, it's the crediting of, from one person to another of a credit. All right, so the Father's at work, the Son's at work, and the Spirit's at work in justification, the bottom of the page. The Spirit, He frees us from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is not annihilated, however, when He frees us from it, but we are separated from its power and authority. The law of the Spirit of life is greater than the law of sin and death. Let's stop there, except for those of you who must go on. The glory and the shame of being OCD, right? <laughs> no, you gotta go on. You stopped. <laughs> okay. All right, I'll meet you on page two in a minute. Okay. <laughs> okay, thank you. All right. The law of gravity and flight. I am not a physicist. Rob Thompson, who's teaching over in the next room, was a professor of physics at the Naval Academy. If you have questions on that, Right over there. Like, <laughs> everybody's out there door, right? However, I do know in just general observation that uh, even though there's a law of gravity, there's still things that go up in the air. But they eventually have to come down, right? There's not a perpetual motion machine or whatever. But the point of it is this, that the law of gravity is overcome by a greater law for a period of time. So thus there's flight. And then you think, too, of the nature of those who can fly. And that is, why can't I and a falcon, there's Amy, all right? All right, Amy, among other things, a falconer. But the point is, if a falcon and I go outside, and you take me up on a very large hill, and you're going to say, okay, fly, uh, he has an advantage, right? <laughs> they were made to fly, right? They were made to fly, and I'm not made to fly. Look, in all of this, it is he, the Spirit, the Spirit's law of the Spirit of life overcomes the law of sin and death. The law and sin of death, like gravity, gravity's not evil, but pulls you in a different direction. And without the Holy Spirit, the new nature of Romans 7 is not sufficient in itself to overcome the drag of the law of sin and death. God never meant to make you again, born again in your own image, and then just go do your own thing. But he still made you reliant. You're able to choose, but you're still reliant on a power greater than yourself to overcome the law of sin and death. And that is the law of the spirit of life. Without the Holy Spirit, there's no sanctification. There's struggle, but there's no true sanctification. And so, there we are. Alright, let's go to page two. Well, in this passage, verses 1 to 4, we also have a threefold benefits of justification, right, in Christ. Namely, forgiveness, freedom, and fulfillment. Let me do those really quick in verses 1 to 4. Again, there's a forgiveness of sin through the Father's plan and Christ's atoning work. There's no condemnation. In the Greek text, the highlight, if you will, the emphasis, the word that, oh, the key term in the Greek text, in this... <laughs> You're like, what? What happened? Uh, is on the word no. There's therefore now no condemnation is the key to this passage. Think about it. No condemnation. That's where you stand if you're a believer here today. 
Doesn't feel like that, though, does it? Right? Yeah, but you don't know my life. Or you don't know my weekend. You don't know my kids. You don't know me. There's a lot to feel condemned about. But there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Romans 5 has already told us, So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. If you were not with us for chapter 5, it doesn't mean everybody saved. But that is, just like it says in Romans 8, in Christ, insert into Romans 8 the idea, all those in Adam are condemned. All those in Christ are made righteous. And then Romans 8 is going to go on to tell us, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? It's like the woman caught in adultery, John chapter 8. Anybody left here? Everybody's gone. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Uh, the beauty of that is this idea. This is what Romans 8 is essentially asking. So who's going to bring a charge in God's courtroom? Anybody be able to go to the courtroom and ask? Nope. Nope. That's it. Who's the one who's going to condemn you? Who's, who's the prosecuting attorney in God's courtroom? Well, it would be God and His commandments. But you have an attorney. John chapter, 1 John 2. Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Done deal. Courtroom scene, go home, Dave. Yeah, but I committed every... Yep, you did. And it all fell on Christ. The hammer of God's wrath fell on him. So B, we're free from the law of sin and death, as we've already said, through the Spirit. He has set you free. Note that. Has. Romans chapter 8 does not begin by saying, all right, you know that struggle we talked about in Romans 7? Now we really got to get up for the game, guys. It's not a halftime talk from Coach Lombardi, as good as that would be. It starts out by saying, you know, the victory is already assured. And really, Romans 8 is going to keep saying this. If you're a believer, it's all going to happen. And the evidence of that is some of these things. Verse 14 is the key. How do I know I'm a Christian? Whatever. It says, those who are led by the Spirit are the children of God. That's Paul's bottom line, if you will. His apex of the apex chapter is, how do I know? If, well, is it by reading my Bible or praying or giving money? or what? Even as a Christian, what is the standard by which I would say that's fruit enough to know that at the end of the day, I'm going to be there? That I'm one of the born-again ones? Well, whatever you put in that category had better come directly from Scripture. Otherwise, you drive yourself crazy. Uh, I was discipled. I don't know why I'm doing that. It should be this. They're discipleship, right? But I was discipled by those who were trained in the navigators. Okay? If you know who they are. Right? Wonderful discipleship. Two years, I've told you that. We met every morning six to, at 6 a.m. Monday to Friday for a year and a half. And this guy discipled me and took me through the Word and my first theology book and taught me to pray and took me through Navigator material. I memorized hundreds of scriptures. Today you're going to see someone, 
Pastor Powell's dad is coming to quote the book of Philippians this morning in the church service. This going to be awesome. I hope it is. <laughs> Except for he's doing it in tongues, which is going to be a real... But at least we have an interpreter present. But, yeah. but I was trained by the navigators, but the danger of such good training is saying, but I'm only spiritual if I've memorized this many verses. Or I'm only spiritual if, I'm, you know, if I've been through this book or the 2-7 series. Or the, or I've, you know what I'm saying. We can always get to a point where we feel comfortable in something, but also that becomes a standard. All those are good things. But Paul says, how do you know the children of God? They're the ones who are led by the Spirit. Now, what we often do is, yeah, yeah, but you need content for lead. Who are led to read their Bibles. Who are led to go to church. Who are led, whatever you insert there becomes the new law. And then you've now placed yourself under a different kind of law. And so... What does led by the Spirit mean? Rhetorical question. And that's what Paul, I believe, is going to address with seven things that we're not going to look at until next week. But in Romans chapter 8, he's going to define for us, how do we know that we are children of God? He wants you to know. This chapter is a perspective, not so that you can walk away and go, man, i got a work to do, but rather, I have work to do, but I am assured that it's going to happen. Those can both happen together. Okay, moving right along. Fulfillment, C, of the requirements of the law through the sacrifice and life of Christ. As we said, imputed, as uh, Scott had said to us, or Brian rather. And what is imputation? To think of as belonging to someone, and therefore to cause it to belong to that person. God thinks of Adam's sin as belonging to us, and therefore it belongs to us. And in justification, he thinks of Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. And so he relates to us on this basis. This uh, little charted thing at the bottom, as you'll recognize perhaps from chapter 3 of Romans I put in there, is just a reminder that we have been given the righteousness of Christ on our account, as these men have said, and the forgiveness of sins because my sins have been placed on his account. All right? Next page. Still in verses 1 to 4. More! More! So not only is the Trinity mentioned, and then three specific benefits, but now three laws are mentioned, right? In verses 1 to 4. They're all mentioned in here. The law of Moses, the law of sin and death, and the law of the spirit of life. All within those first four verses. Why? Well, the law of Moses is, is again, there because we used to be under its power. And it's the context of chapter 7. We could not obey the law in our flesh. Weak as the law was. Weak as the law was because of our flesh. The law couldn't do anything to save us. Because we could not obey it in our flesh. We are no longer married uh, to it. But rather we're married to Christ. In union with Christ. We're in Christ. We're not in Moses. Now, in the, we're also told in the scriptures that people were baptized into Moses. I didn't know Moses was made out of water, but it's really not that funny. I get it. Scratch that. Um, <laughs> that's true. Uh, but we're in Christ, not into Moses, or in Moses. Christ fulfilled the law, and Christ paid for our violations of the law. It's the two things. In the verses 1 to 4, we're told that he was an offering for sin. And that he has given us essentially his righteousness by living that life. 
So secondly, the law of sin and death is mentioned. The Spirit sets us free from this law in two ways. By regenerating us, first of all. The law of sin and death is, you sin, you die. Pretty simple. Now, the law has lots of other operative factors, but that's pretty much the way it rolls. By regeneration, he has set us free from it in its legal sense. He made us alive so that we could believe. He resurrected us from the dead, and he overcame the law of sin and death, Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. And in parentheses, by grace you have been saved. He made you alive when you were dead. Uh, this is the same word here that would be used in the Greek text for resurrected you. You sinned, you died. We all died in Adam. How did he make you alive? We were totally depraved, as Romans chapter 3 has told us. He opened us, he made us alive, so our mind, will, and affections were now able, for the first time, to understand the gospel, to want the gospel, to understand we were truly sinners, and we awakened in a way we had been dead. And God made us alive. It's Wesley's hymn in which he talks about being in the, the prison, basically. And the door opens up and the light comes in. Right? Which, which hymn is that? Do you recall? And can it be? What a great hymn. Long, my imprisoned, whatever, you know. Super good. Super good. And that's the picture here in Ephesians 2. That he made you alive with Christ. So you've been saved by grace. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. So that in the ages to come, he might have the, we might have the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. But how does he also, the Holy Spirit, overcome the law of sin and death as it is now still operative? The law of sin and death did not get annihilated. The law of gravity is not annihilated when planes fly. Right? The law of sin and death is still operative in our bodies. That's through the flesh. But he sanctifies us. He overcomes the residual Adamic nature, the flesh. And he causes in believers growth in Christ-likeness, assurance of our sonship, and perseverance in our faith. That's what Romans 8 is going to tell us. The Holy Spirit causes, not just helps us. These are not things gained by our merit. The Holy Spirit overcomes sin and death, and He creates within us these three essential things. That He makes us in the image of Christ. That's the purpose for which we were, we were elected. Romans chapter 8, 28-30. He assures us along the way that we're just fine. We're in Him. And then He gives us the grace and the ability to persevere in that walk. Those are three things that this chapter engages us on. Woo! Good stuff.
And then he mentions the law of the spirit of life. As noted above, the spirit overcomes the flesh. The concept of the law is another way of saying the pattern things work by, the process they work by, and the principles they work by, by which the spirit works in the life of a believer. So it's the law of the spirit of life that has a pattern, it has processes, and it has principles. Some of the ministries of the Holy Spirit we can play a game show. Some of the ministries of the Holy Spirit for 500, right? Um, I am just noting a few for your holy minds to be re-encouraged this morning is the Holy Spirit is not just trying to get you sanctified, but is doing all these things. Now, the first one I mention is that He is part of creation, the very first of it. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form, etc., etc., and then it says this. You know, the Holy Spirit is also playing the same role He played in creation of the universe. He plays in the new creation, right? In the creation of the universe, He came along after the... And then He puts in order. He begins to move things into their places. And that's what he does in here. Christ, we are saved by the cross work of Christ. But he regenerates us and then goes, got some work to do here. And begins a full restoration of work within the soul to bring us in conformity to what? The image of Christ. So the, the pattern is already set. There's a blueprint. The Holy Spirit gets to work within us. And it's the Holy Spirit's job in the Trinity to make you in the image of Christ. He's not going to fail. It was the Son's responsibility to die for our sins and atone. He did that. The Spirit's not going to show up and go, Dude, this project's way too hard. Right? You're giving me Doyle? No. Nobody can get in there and do that. But the Spirit's job, His role in the Trinity in terms of the economy of salvation, is to conform us to the image of Christ, which He will complete to the day Philippians 1.6, he'll complete it until the day of Christ. And so, other ministries. Inspiring scripture. Uh, the one who's going to tell you how to obey the scripture wrote it. You ever got to an author signing of a book? You're like, what was the... You can ask any question you want. Hey, I was a product of the 60s. I was not a Christian until I was 18 years old. And uh, my brother was a musician. That's a whole different picture. But when I became a Christian... I had records and stuff from secular guys that I felt, now nobody told me to, but I remember I took my whole collection and threw it all away. About two years later, I was like, what was that? It was an act of obedience at the time, out of the weakness of my conscience, but there was a strength. But in that, I had a big collection of Bob Dylan stuff, okay, for whatever it's worth. And the big thing about Bob Dylan is you hear all his music and you still have no idea what he was talking about. And people have asked him all through the years, what were you talking about? And he makes up a new answer every time. Oh, I was talking about the, uh, you know, whatever. Well, the Holy Spirit doesn't do that. Holy Spirit wrote the stuff and, if he, and he now will give you through the teaching ministry, illuminating ministry of the Spirit, he'll tell you what it actually means. That's his intended purpose. The begetting of Christ. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. He regenerated us. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, 
he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. He comforts us. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another comforter, that he may be with you forever. And then the, the Spirit sanctifies. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Hey, just a few of the other ministries of the Holy Spirit, some of them mentioned in Romans chapter 8, the indwelling of the Spirit, which we'll look at here in a few minutes. The baptizing, sealing, filling ministry of the Holy Spirit, the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, the assuring, the guiding How does the Holy Spirit guide us? Interceding for us in this chapter. The gifts of the Spirit. The the spiritual gifts are gifts of the Spirit. And then the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Let's just put it where it's at. There is no salvation, but there's certainly no sanctification without the Holy Spirit. What is let's go to the next page. If someone said, What is what does it mean to be spiritual? I think one author has said. It's a grown-up relationship with the Holy Spirit. It's just a grown-up relationship with the Holy Spirit. Being led by the Holy Spirit, being guided, being taught, all of those works of the Holy Spirit. Some of the works of the Holy Spirit, many of them, are imperceptible to us in in time-space. We don't see them happening, they are just happening. In others, there's a relational aspect to the work of the Holy Spirit that cannot be denied and which this whole chapter will unfold. Okay, then finally, fourth point on page four, who fulfills the law? What question is that? The fourth verse of the first four verses says this at the top, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Okay, I'm going to say what I'm going to say, then I'm going to say it, and then I'll say what I said. Okay. Kind of depends on what you do with this passage, what you're going to do with the next few verses. And that is, the Holy Spirit was given to us. Christ died. He paid for all of our sins so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who do not walk according to the flesh. Some have said, Christ died for our sins so that all of this will be taken care of in us. So that when we get the Holy Spirit, we can fulfill the law. Well, that's one way of reading it. Or a milder version. The Holy Spirit has saved you and has given you the Holy Spirit so that you can fulfill the requirements of the law, but not for salvation. It's a, it, so that you're able now to do what you could not do. Or what? So here's some of my points on this. What is he saying here? Is he giving a definition of what a Christian is? A Christian is one whose Christ has died for and then they are... Uh, walking in such a way as to fulfill the requirements of the law, that the Holy Spirit is given to us so that we fulfill the law by walking in the Spirit, it would then be defining the law fulfillers as the ones who walk in the Spirit. Or is it a description of those in whom the law has been fulfilled? That Christ condemns sin in the flesh so that He fulfills the requirements, He, Christ, of the law for those described as walking in the Spirit. Uh, That's going to be my take, but let me explain So that Christ fulfilled in us, by his work, the requirements of the law. Who is he talking about? The people who walk, not in the flesh, but in the spirit. They're not connected in cause and effect. It's a description of who he's talking about. 
rather than it's a cause and effect that Christ died and the Spirit came to you so that now you can fulfill the requirements of the law. I may have lost some of you on this finer point. <clears throat> See me afterwards and we'll play Wordle. Okay, number two, that Christ condemns sin in the flesh so that the Holy Spirit fulfills the requirements of the law for those walking in the Spirit is then describing the person who is the recipient of benefits of sanctification. Notice that it is passive, might be fulfilled. Um, this is not an imperative, it's an indicative, and it's passive in Greek, which just means this. Christ died, and you're the person, the people who are walking in the Spirit, have the fulfillment of the law done to them in them. It's not something that they do through walking in the Spirit. It's something passive. You know, sometimes when you're thinking and you're studying and you think, what will someone's question be? And then you, then you put down material because you think someone will have a question then you realize, nobody cared. Nobody cared about that finer point. We got that, Dave. I had that point before you even started. Okay? Alright, let's look at verses 5 to 11 then. Two kinds of people is who he's talking about. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Um, I just want to make this really clear statement before I get obscure it. If you're in the flesh, and that's the person who's unsaved, and you cannot please God. Then when people argue and say, but a person can believe who's not a Christian. Well, it says in Hebrews chapter 11, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And faith is what activates justification. You're told here, the person in the flesh cannot please God. By implication, cannot believe. And so verse 9, however... You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, through, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. How do you know who's a Christian? <clears throat> they have the Holy Spirit. Oh, great. Now it's even more complicated. Mystery. Yes, Steve. Your point, and for the recording's point, Steve's making the point, hey, there's people who are like, I'm saved, but their lifestyles are not conforming at all to that. And that's what Paul's addressing here. Uh, for the person who's in the flesh, they think about fleshly things. That's the center point of their life. The person in the Spirit, how do you know the person in the Spirit? They think about spiritual things. They, they are, their mind is set on the things of the Spirit, it says. And where it says your mind is set on the things of the flesh. It's the orientation of your life and the direction of your life and what consumes what you love, what you desire, what you think about most. Uh, A.W. Tozer talked about that. 
Yeah, where he talks about the thing that you think about the most and the thing you long for the most when you're by yourself, when there's no other activity going on, and what you think of. What do, what do you really want? I want to be rich. I want to be famous. I want to have pleasure. I want to do this. My real life goal is, that, you know, what the heart is telling you that is not just aching, but you believe it. And that's what you want in the real self. That is the dictated who you really are. And that's what this passage is saying. It's not they go to church or whatever. Those are indicator lights on the dashboard that something's wrong. There's a little thing that comes up. The church light goes off on your dashboard. It's telling you, you know, I'm not really involved in church. But your engine's still running. Now, if you get an engine light, <laughs> right, that may be telling you, an engine light here is, you would get a, you'd get a fleshlight that would come up on the dashboard of your life, and it's like, you're living in the flesh, dude. You may not even have a real engine. Versus other indicator lights come up that are just warnings. And so here, he's getting to the root of it is, it's a lifestyle. And if you have a lifestyle, and let me, let me go on with it, but if a person has a lifestyle that is in the flesh, they should have no sense that they're a Christian. So believers don't walk according to the flesh. There are only two kinds of people in the Bible, or mentioned in the Bible. There's not three. There are two. The person according to the flesh, they're unsaved. The person who's according to the Spirit, they're saved. That's it. Unfortunately, some people immediately go, oh, the people who do these things, yes, no. Again, take it back to marriage. This started this whole illustration in Romans 7, 1 through 6. We're not married to the law, we're married to Christ. Not to take the image too far, but the relationship is built on love, not laws. And love is the guiding principle of a good marriage and of a good relationship, not laws. So you don't say, they've got a great marriage because Dave takes the trash out. And Carla's a great cook. Or they've divided up. It's not all the stuff we do that defines our marriage is great. Because people can have a really picturesque marriage but not really have love. And that's the relationship with God. That ultimately, do you love God and love your neighbor? Those are the, the predominant signs. So, okay, into it. There are two kinds of people, according to the flesh and according to the spirit, according to Paul. Paul contrasts the way these people do four things. The way they think, the way their attitude is towards God, their spiritual capacity, and their end. Let me say that again. In these next few verses, verses 5 to 11, he's going to point out four things. There's a difference between the way they think, their attitude towards God, their spiritual capacity, and their end. So let's go to uh, right there at the bottom of page 4. What are we talking about? The deeds of the flesh or the mind of the flesh. Well, in Galatians, Paul addresses that. He says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, same thing he's going to say in Romans 8. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. That's again, don't make up laws. What does that mean in verse 19? Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. Not giving enough money. Not serving in VBS. These are sins indeed. But they're not the ones he points out. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality. 
living a life of immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry. Again, all these words, if we just put physicality on them, idols of stone and wood, but no, they're idols of the heart. That's what Jesus got into the deeper dive on these, didn't he? Yes, you have never committed adultery, but you did so in your heart, and therefore you already have. Idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger. Ruh-roh. Does he mean once? No, these are lifestyles. Disputes, dissensions, factions. I know I've been to a lot of churches and I know that I'm a source of disputes, dissensions, and factions, but I'm sure I'm a real Christian. Not speaking of myself. That person who's always correcting every church they attend? Envying. I know Christian life's not about money, but man, what's up with them having a BMW? (laughs) Alright, I'm going to tell a story. When I became a Christian and then God through His grace made clear to me and to my church that I should be in the ministry, the vocational ministry, which is no different than we're all ministers, okay? But called me to that. Um, I didn't take a vow of poverty or anything, but I had in my mind things like, I'm never going to buy a super good car because there's such a problem in America of charlatans who take money for the gospel and then fly around, you know, Creflo dollaring you know? <laughs> right? Okay. Right, Joel Osteen, you know, Dave Doyle, guys like that, Benny Hinn. So, so there's things you have to avoid, in my estimation, as a Christian pastor in this generation because they are particularly sensitive sins of the culture. It's not wrong to own a nice car. Not at all. It does not indicate necessarily that you're idolater or envious or, I mean, coveter. doesn't. But it can also be for the weaker brothers and all that. My point of this is, so I decided, hey, I'm just never going to own a really nice car. And I have fulfilled that. (laughs) But about 13, 14 years ago in California, uh, Carla and I put a little money in our envelopes to save up for cars, right? So in our little virtual envelope. And I had enough money in my little virtual car envelope to buy a used 20-year-old BMW drop top. And I was like, I'm going to do it. (laughs) 20-year-old car, almost metaphorically out of gas, you know what I mean? So I buy this car, and I'm thinking, I go to a church in California, people have good jobs, and they're not, 1,500 people, nobody cares whether I have a car, they all have nice cars. I show up at church for a Bible study that I'm teaching, pull in, go in, 10 minutes later, somebody walks in and goes, oh, Buying those kind of cars now, huh? Twenty year old car? Twenty year old car. That car was $1,800. And worth every penny. I paid cash for that car. And I paid cash for them to come take it away, too. The guy who bought it for me is like, that seems awful cheap. Just take my car. Just go away. All right. 
I'm not sure that had anything to do with anything, but we're back to <laughs> enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing. And then Paul just says, and things like these. You know what I mean? In case you're like, man, I'm good. <laughs> of which I forewarn you, just as I forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's reality. Romans chapter 8 is not telling us, then you better work hard. It's saying, do you even have an engine? Because if you're born again, the Spirit will produce such things. It's a birthright of being a Christian. It's not how you become a Christian. It's also not how you keep your Christianity by working hard. You will work hard for those things because you love God and because it's what you want. I'm going to go back to the marriage thing, but nobody has to... There doesn't have to be a sign-up in my kitchen that says, Hey, really miss Carla today when you're at work. (laughs) Sorry, some of you men will think I'm pretty weak. But I think about her quite often in the day. I'm like, Carla! (laughs) There doesn't have to be a sign-up in my kitchen. But if there has to be a sign-up in our spiritual kitchen, kitchen all the time for some law about what I should do with God, then you have to ask the root of where it's coming from. Do I love God because that's what the Spirit has produced in me? Am I born again? And if we don't love God and don't desire Him and don't desire to be holy, even if we're not, but if we don't desire those things, we're not a Christian. We're just simply not a Christian because it's the first evidence Being born again leads to loving God. And then see at the bottom of the page, those who are according to the Spirit, however, are different. goes right on in Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. There's no law against doing them. And there's no higher law than that. If you love God and love your neighbor, and you grow in these Christ-like attributes, you are born again. Not because you do those things, if you trust in Christ, but as evidence. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit as saying, if you truly are a Christian, you live by the, you're according to the Spirit, then practice that. Do that as a habit. Alright, page five. Two kinds of people. Christians and Raider fans. Alright. This is just a summary then of those verses, verses 5 to 11. What are we told? That a person according to the flesh, the way they think, is their mind is set on fleshly things. Let me stop there. When we read a list like we just read in Galatians 5, we may have the impression that being fleshly means doing evil things. Right? But you can be fleshly in your desire to be religious because it's an idolatry if you don't have the true gospel. Religious people can be in the flesh, 
They're Mr. Worldly Wise Man in the book, you know, in Pilgrim's Progress. You can be just as much of the flesh, not the spirit. Because the flesh has a way of working its way to God and feeling pride and all those things. So it's not evil deeds only. Those are the easy connects. But it's also being in the flesh means thinking of yourself too highly, those kind of things. But also, according to the spirit, their mind is set on spiritual things. It's a lifestyle of being concerned for those. Their attitude towards God, this scripture says that the person who's in the flesh is hostile towards God. Their mind is hostile. Wait a minute. What about all those religious people who go to church? Are their minds hostile towards God? Yes, by this definition, that is. If you don't care about God's glory and accept His word as He has said it, and your life is not for His glory, then you don't care about God. It's, if you love somebody, you do something for their benefit. So if you don't love them, according to Scripture, you hate them. It's in contra- contradiction to it. So all people, Jesus said, everyone hates me. But it's not because they hate Jesus, the character. But they hate coming under his authority. They hate living for his benefit because they've chosen to live for their own benefit. So in comparison, they are hostile towards God. Their mind is in hostility towards God as authority. And also God as guide of their life. And so their life is their own. And so their mind is hostile towards God's intrusion into their authority in their own little kingdom. And then what about the mind of the person of the Spirit? They love God and His law, according to this passage. They love God's law. I long to be conformed to God's law. I want that. It's a prayer that I pray of. I don't want to want what you I don't want to want what I want. I want to want what you want. I want to want that. And then their spiritual capacity. We're told in this passage, the person in the flesh is unable to obey or please God. Now remember, we went through Romans 3. Paul talks about depravity. This is going to set you up for election in Romans 9 to remember this. It does not say they're unwilling. They are unwilling. Which is a fruit of being unable. If you are dead, you are dead. It takes a work of the Holy Spirit to bring to life those who are spiritually dead so that we can become alive in Christ. You don't become alive and believe the gospel so that you can then be made alive, but it's a work of the Holy Spirit. Unless God does something, like Jesus said to the disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Very simple thing. Oh, well, he's just talking about when he chose them to actively join No, he saw Nathaniel under the tree, right? I chose you. You did not choose me. And that's the point of this is they're unable. So the point of this, if a person's in the flesh, there's nothing that can be done for them. Not church attendance, not... There's nothing. Without a work of the Holy Spirit. Spirit regenerates, he sanctifies. But the person who's now in the Spirit is able to obey and please God. And what is the final end? Death or life and peace? That's the only two ends to this. So remember from Romans chapter 3, I just quickly put the little chart I put in in Romans 3 of our total inability according to Romans 3. Our standing before God if we're in the flesh, there are none righteous, not even one. Our minds, there are none who understands. Our affections, there's none who seeks for God. Our plans, they've all turned aside. Our merit, they've become useless. Our works, none who does good. 
our words, their throat, their tongues, their lips, their mouths are open. Uh, what is it? Open grave, thank you. Our walk, their feet are swift to shed blood. Our wake, destruction and misery are in their paths. Our way, the path of peace they have not known. And our worldview, no fear of God before their eyes. That's what Paul's already told us what humanity is. And now he's simply saying, the person in the flesh is that person. They cannot please God. They cannot change. It needs a work of the Holy Spirit. God must move first. And then, number two on page five in the middle then. So now we walk according to the Spirit. However, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. So A, the indwelling of the Spirit, verse 9, as opposed to the indwelling of sin in verse 7, I mean chapter 7, is that every believer is indwelt by the Spirit from the moment of conversion. If you are not indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. In the book of Jude, which talks about false teachers throughout the church, here's what it would say about them. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. That if there were, that they were saying to you, in the last times there will be mockers, following their own ungodly lust. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. Those false teachers. So it's not enough to consider yourself a spiritual person. People are like, hey, you need to have the Holy Spirit. I'm a spiritual person. I'm a very spiritual person. I've had those conversations. They usually take place on an airplane. I don't know why. Oh, if you knew me, my friends know of me as a... I'm a very spiritual person. Which spirit? It's their misunderstanding that God has given everyone eternity in their heart. And that we all have a spirit... And that we are spiritual people. Right? We all are. But it's what you do and who you worship within it. Yes, ma'am. That's really well said. Um, that friends or people who want to be filled with the Spirit, um, it's, it's not, I'm going to use the word ontological, it's not that he's become bigger, but he has more control. That's the point of Ephesians 5, right? Uh, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, and it's giving the the idea of don't be filled with wine but be filled with the Spirit is a contrast and a comparison of if you're filled with wine, you think things you shouldn't think, you do things you shouldn't do, and you you feel things you shouldn't feel if you're drunk with wine. Uh, and if it says, but the Spirit, it's a control issue. But the Spirit will make you think things you would not have thought on your own, feel those, and do things that you would not have done on your own. And that's why being filled with the Spirit is contrasted with Drunkenness, because it's a, it's something that controls you, an outside source. Yeah. Good. Um, Got to know when to fold them. <laughs> we have only four minutes, and if I dive into this next section, it's not going to be. We'll come back, Lord willing, to this section next week. Uh, the the two and a half pages or two pages I have not finished. I'll start with those, and uh, we'll continue our work. And next week we're going to talk about. Lord willing, being led by the Spirit. And I want to talk, it's okay to fold your papers, whatever. I want to talk next week about one important subject that keeps coming up in being led by the Spirit. And that is, how do I know God's will? Because when people talk about being led by the Spirit, they often mean, 
internal sense and where do I go and all that. And that's part of that longer conversation with that. All right, let me pray.